Chapter Two, Part Two of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty-five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Years of President Cleveland, Part Two. Of course, in this they were speedily undeceived. No one who really understands the manner in which the government is conducted could ever credit such impossible assertions. The party in power does not try to conceal its public acts from the leaders of the opposition, and the committees of Congress made up of members of both parties are thoroughly informed of whatever happens. Indeed, the old and experienced party leaders in both House and Senate work harmoniously enough together in matters of administrative detail. They battle fiercely in view of the galleries, but in the committee rooms they arrange matters with an eye to the general needs of the public service and with the sensible purpose of seeing the government properly carried on. Whenever a zealous but inexperienced young member tries to make a stir upon his own account and to attack those measures which have been arranged by his seniors, he is quietly suppressed by the chiefs of his own party and the business of the government goes on unvexed. And therefore, naturally enough, the so-called discrepancies in the Treasury reports were found to be due simply to varying modes of bookkeeping. The awful revelations that had been looked for were never made, and with a single exception, there was no real ground for an attack upon the manner in which the Republicans had discharged their trust. Even the figures published by the Democrats themselves showed that the public service had been steadily improving in honesty and efficiency for many years. Thus, during the first term of President Grant, 1869-1873, when the loose and careless methods of the Civil War still partially prevailed, the government had lost by defalcations and in other irregular ways the sum of $8,875,483. During his second term, 1873-1877, however, this loss showed a diminution of nearly 50% being $4,547,247. Under President Hayes, 1877-1881, the amount had fallen to $1,775,996, and under Presidents Garfield and Arthur, 1881-1885, to the Democrats found nothing here to justify their dark suspicions and provide them with weapons for party use. One department alone had been disgracefully mismanaged, though of the fact the whole nation had long been unpleasantly aware. This was the Navy Department. Under President Grant, the Secretary of the Navy from 1869 to 1877, had been the notorious George M. Robeson of New Jersey, a man whose inefficiency and gross neglect, to use no harsher term, had practically destroyed the fleets which at the close of the Civil War had been the most formidable in the world. Robeson had spent millions upon what he called repairs, these repairs sometimes costing more than the original value of the ships repaired, and even then serving only to perpetuate types of vessels which had become obsolete and worthless in the face of naval progress in other countries. Secretary Whitney's first report summed up the matter with terse impressiveness. The country has expended since July 1, 1868, more than three years subsequent to the close of the late Civil War, over $75 million of money on the construction, repair, equipment, and ordinance of vessels which some, with a very slight exception, has been substantially thrown away, the exception being a few ships now in process of construction. I do not overlook the sloops constructed in 1874 and costing three million or four million dollars, and to avoid discussion they may be accepted also. 
the fact still remains that for about seventy of the seventy-five millions of dollars which have been expended by the department for the creation of a navy we have practically nothing to show it is questionable whether we have a single naval vessel finished and afloat at the present time that could be trusted to encounter the ships of any important power a single vessel that has either the necessary armor for protection speed for escape or weapons for defense this however was an old scandal and related more especially to the days when grant was president under president arthur there had been instituted a better order of things and consequently political capital was not to be found in the condition of the navy the really serious grievance which many democrats began to entertain arose from president cleveland's position regarding the distribution of the public offices at the time of his inauguration there were fifty two thousand six hundred nine ordinary postmasterships two thousand three hundred seventy nine so-called presidential postmasterships one hundred eleven collectorships of customs two hundred twenty four places in the local land offices and thirty-four important diplomatic posts besides scores of consulships appraiserships indian agencies pension agencies territorial governorships and judgeships positions in the revenue service surveyorships and superintendencies many having attached to them a certain amount of petty patronage almost every one of these offices some one hundred ten thousand in all was occupied by a republican to secure them and to enjoy their emoluments was the hope of thousands upon thousands of democratic party workers who now swarmed like locusts in the streets of washington and besieged the governmental bureaus and the portals of the white house even when a republican president had succeeded one of his own party an invasion of office seekers had invariably followed new congressmen always demanded changes in their districts members of the president's own faction always asked for removals and new appointments party rivals had always to be propitiated but if this had been true in the case of an ordinary change of administration it can be imagined how enormous was the pressure for recognition now that not only had the administration been changed but that a party which had been out of power for a quarter of a century had resumed control president cleveland in fact was in the same position as that occupied by mr lincoln in eighteen sixty one when a critical observer after visiting washington thus wrote home the nation is going to pieces states are seceding utter ruin is at hand and here is lincoln thinking of nothing except who shall be appointed postmaster in some little town or gauger in some little port every successive president had felt the annoyance of a system such as this and would have been infinitely relieved could the burden of it have been lightened a practical remedy was the institution of such a reform in the appointment system as would protect the president from incessant importunity in eighteen sixty seven a report had been made to the house of representatives note twelve page sixty seven recommending that a large class of appointments should be regarded as non-political and hence to be made upon the basis of competitive examinations and with fixity of tenure conditioned upon meritorious service in eighteen seventy one congress authorized the president to appoint a civil service commission and to approve such rules as it might make for admission to government employ this measure had the support of president grant who appointed the first commission of which mr george william curtis was chairman but public sentiment or at any rate party sentiment was not yet ripe for a reform like this all the influential party leaders on both sides despised it and it was contemptuously spoken of as snivel service reform from eighteen seventy two to eighteen seventy five the rules made by the first commission remained in force but president grant could not withstand the pressure brought to bear upon him and so somewhat reluctantly he suspended their operation 
after the assassination of President Garfield by a disappointed office seeker in 1882, both Houses of Congress enacted a law usually known as the Pendleton Law, note 13, page 68, which thoroughly satisfied the civil service reformers. This empowered the President to prescribe by executive order what classes of the public service should come under the operation of the merit system as framed by a new civil service commission. Under President Arthur, some 14,000 government employees were brought within the so-called classified service. Note 14, page 68. Mr. Cleveland was thoroughly in sympathy with the principle of this reform. In his letter of acceptance, August 19, 1884, he had said, The selection and retention of subordinates in government employment should depend upon their ascertained fitness and the value of their work, and they should be neither expected nor allowed to do questionable party service. This and other like declarations had done much to attract independent voters to Mr. Cleveland's side. After his election, and before his inauguration, a number of these independents addressed to him a letter asking his intentions with regard to civil service reform. Replying to them, December 20, 1884, Mr. Cleveland wrote some very significant sentences in which may be found an explanation of his subsequent course. They give evidence that he had already formulated very carefully a definite policy. After reiterating his former promise to uphold the civil service law, he went on to say, I regard myself pledged to this because my conception of true democratic faith and public duty requires that this and all other statutes should be in good faith and without evasion enforced, and because, in many utterances made prior to my election as president, approved by the party to which I belong and which I have no disposition to disclaim, I have in effect promised the people that this should be done. Another paragraph shows that he did not underrate the difficulty of carrying out his pledge. I am not unmindful of the fact to which you refer that many of our citizens fear that the recent party change in the national executive may demonstrate that the abuses which have grown up in the civil service are ineradicable. I know that they are deeply rooted and that the spoils system has been supposed to be intimately related to success in the maintenance of party organization, and I am not sure that all those who profess to be the friends of this reform will stand firmly among its advocates when they find it obstructing their way to patronage and place. A very important sentence in the light of what afterwards happened is the following. There is a class of government positions which are not within the letter of the civil service statute, but which are so disconnected with the policy of an administration that the removal therefrom of present incumbents, in my opinion, should not be made during the terms for which they were appointed solely on partisan grounds, and for the purpose of putting in their places those who are in political accord with the appointing power but many men holding such positions have forfeited all just claim to retention because they have used their places for party purposes in disregard of their duty to the people and because instead of being decent public servants they have proved themselves offensive partisans and unscrupulous manipulators of local party management one sentence was obviously meant for democratic perusal while Democrats may expect a proper consideration, selections for office not embraced within the civil service rules will be based upon sufficient inquiry as to fitness, rather than upon persistent importunity or self-solicited recommendations on behalf of candidates for appointment. One may add to these utterances a passage from a letter of his, September 11, 1885, to Mr. Dorman B. Eaton, a conspicuous civil service reformer. 
a reasonable toleration for old prejudices, a graceful recognition of every aid, a sensible utilization of every instrumentality that promises assistance, and a constant effort to demonstrate the advantages of the new order of things are the means by which this reform movement will in the future be further advanced. By putting all these statements together, President Cleveland's policy in regard to appointments was clear enough for anyone to understand. In the first place, he did not intend to reform the civil service overnight, as some of the independent doctrinaries expected him to do. In the second place, he did not intend to sweep all Republicans out of office before the expiration of their terms and without regard to the merit of the service which they had rendered. What he did mean to do was gradually to extend the operation of the civil service rules and in the meantime, in filling vacancies with Democrats, to exact from them a reasonable standard of character and efficiency. This was a very sensible and very practical program. It was certain, however, to subject him to a three-cornered attack. First, from the advanced reformers who were impatient of all delay. Second, from the Democrats who had expected immediately to monopolize all the offices in the President's gift and third, from his Republican adversaries who were bound to find fault with him whatever he might do. Mr. Cleveland had a vigorous contempt for professional office-seekers, and he had no mind to be subjected to their importunities. Note 15, page 71. When approached by them, he could make himself extremely disagreeable. He had two separate and distinct manners of showing his displeasure, either one of which was quite effectual. At times he would become absolutely glacial. At other times his face would flush and he would pound the table with his clenched fist and give voice with vigorous expletives to an expression of his inflexible purpose. Some of his visitors who came on political errands found him anything but tractable. A somewhat rueful anecdote ascribed to Mr. Henry Watterson, note 16, page 72, may be cited as wholly characteristic of both men. We chatted and joked and laughed and were on terms of the most agreeable comradeship. I don't know what the President thought of me, but I marked him in my mental tablet as a splendid companion and a very jolly good fellow. After an hour pleasantly spent in the personal enjoyment of each other, and when the laughter had subsided that followed a story by the President, I thought it would be a good time to mention a little matter in which I felt interested. As soon as I began the recital, I could see the process of congelation and before I had half finished my story the President was a monumental icicle. I became so thoroughly chilled that I broke off, took up my hat, and said, Good night, Mr. President. That's the kind of a good fellow Cleveland is. Mr. Joaquin Miller the poet also had a little interview with the President, of which he subsequently published an account in the Chicago Times. Here is my first interview which I dotted down a few minutes after. Mr. President, I, I, I want Captain Hoxey to be returned to Washington so as to complete our waterworks. Captain Hoxey, answered the President instantly, is subject to the orders of the Secretary of War, and he looked at me as if to say, and you know it. Yes, I knew I had come to the wrong place and was boring the President and bothering for nothing much as I had the matter at heart. So I gave up that subject and started on another equally important. Mr. President, one thing more. I hear you are going to remove Commissioner Edmonds, the head of our commissioners, for Washington, and I, I... The President looked hard at me and said promptly, You have heard that. Well, I have not heard of it, and as I shall have to hear of it before he is removed, you can rest easy on that score for the present. 
By this time I felt that I had not the slightest business with the president, and so fell in with the band of shorn sheep that was passing on and out of the corral by another door. Naturally, the expectant Democrats could not all at once believe that Mr. Cleveland really meant to carry out his pledges. The cynical assumption that political promises are made only to be broken, and that Jove laughs at statesmen's vows no less good-naturedly than at those of lovers, was firmly fixed in all their minds. Of course, the President had a little fad in the matter of the civil service. Of course, he really meant what he had said. But equally, of course, he would give way and thus make things more easy for himself. All other presidents had done so. It was merely a question of bringing enough pressure to bear upon him. And so, thousands of place-hunters lingered in Washington, wasting their time and depleting their resources while they waited for the necessary pressure to be applied. But as the weeks slipped away, it gradually dawned upon them that here was a president who could not be coaxed or driven or coerced. His cabinet officers were beset by congressmen and local leaders from all over the country, but they were just as helpless as the rest. The one great hope of the famished Democrats rested in Vice President Hendricks. He was a Western politician of the older type, a thorough partisan, narrow, intense, not squeamish about reforms, but a firm believer in Marcy's doctrine that in politics, as in war, the spoils belong of right to the victorious. Urged on by the almost frantic appeals that were made to him each hour of the day, Mr. Hendricks had a protracted interview with the President. Just what took place between them no one knows, but Mr. Hendricks came away with a long face and the word was quickly passed that even he had failed. All this soon placed the President in a new light before the country. It is rather remarkable that the lesson of his firmness while Governor of New York had made no real impression elsewhere. After his election to the Presidency and before he entered upon the duties of his office, speculation had been rife as to who would control the new administration. A writer whose identity was kept secret, but who aspired to be a second junius, had addressed to the president-elect a series of very bitter letters which were afterward collected and published in a book. Note 17, page 74. These letters are very curious reading now, for they show how little Mr. Cleveland's character was understood at the time when they were written. They take it for granted that the president will be a pygmy among giants, it must move the heart of your most malevolent enemy to note with what a beggarly stock and trade you will open business in the White House. You know that you have nothing to expect after the term which will soon begin. You would like to float through its four years, softly and easily. You are well aware that in your political career you have been a pawn in the hands of stronger men. This was only what many persons had thought, but Mr. Cleveland had not been in office a week before his absolute mastery began to be understood. After his first cabinet meeting had adjourned, a leading politician asked one of the secretaries, "'Well, who is running things?' To which the reply was made with a significant shrug. "'Where MacGregor sits, there is the head of the table. You may be sure of that.' It was, in fact, the same in Washington as it had been in Albany. There was no divided responsibility, no kitchen cabinet." Whatever blame and whatever praise the administration might receive, the President was entitled to them both. Mr. Watterson wrote of him, We have at this moment as personal a government as we had under Grant. That Mr. Cleveland had some of the defects of his qualities began also to appear. It was not sufficient for him to exercise the power which he possessed. He seemed almost morbidly desirous of impressing upon everyone the fact that he alone was exercising it. 
Because it had been said that he would be a puppet, he thought it necessary to deal inconsiderately with those who were supposed to manage him. In this there was at times a touch of quite unnecessary arrogance. Thus, because Vice President Hendricks had been credited with ability superior to the President's, Mr. Cleveland was never cordial to him. Because Secretary Manning was one of the men who had helped to make Mr. Cleveland both governor and president, he found a personal enemy appointed postmaster in his home city of Albany. Mr. Tilden, who might have had the nomination in 1884, had he not declined it in advance, wrote to the president and asked for the appointment of Mr. Smith M. Weed as collector for the Port of New York. He was met with a flat refusal. Mr. Cleveland's enemies called this sort of thing a jealousy of greater men. A fairer judgment would perhaps call it a jealousy of his own independence. But in any case it caused bad feeling and added to the dissatisfaction excited by his failure to appoint more Democrats to office. Party discontent became outspoken. Men recalled the saying of John Kelly to Mr. Hendricks before the election, Cleveland is no Democrat. If elected he will prove a traitor to his party. Mr. Hendricks himself observed, I had hoped that Mr. Cleveland would put the Democratic Party into power in fact as well as in name. Senator Vance of North Carolina declared, The President is not of my school of democracy. We differ as widely as it is possible for two persons belonging to the same political party to differ. Senator Pugh of Alabama denounced the President's course in terms both metaphorical and profane. The newspapers, especially in the South and West, began openly to attack the President. Some of them advocated reading him out of the party altogether. Brand President Cleveland traitor and kick him out of the party, cried an Alabama editor. The rage of the disappointed office hunters even found expression in verse. One hitherto mute, inglorious poet of the West got a wide hearing through some lines whose sincerity of feeling was more obvious than their elegance of diction. A Democrat fool who serves as a tool the men of his party to beat deserves to be thrashed and have his head mashed and kicked out into the street. Tis better to vote for some billy-goat that butts for his corn and his hay than to vote for a man that has not the sand to stand by his party a day. Of course, it was inevitable that the President should have many offices to fill. The terms of thousands of Republican incumbents expired and the places were given to Democratic successors. Other Republicans were summarily removed, presumably because, in Mr. Cleveland's famous phrases, they had shown themselves to be offensive partisans and guilty of pernicious activity while holding public office. Within a year, some 8,000 fourth-class postmasterships had been allotted to Democrats. Yet these changes seemed infrequent and slow to the army of those whom Mr. G. W. Curtis had styled a hungry horde. The President, perhaps, moved a little more cautiously than he would otherwise have done had he not discovered that in many instances his confidence had been abused. Members of Congress, in whose judgment he had trusted, induced him to appoint men who soon turned out to be utterly unfit. Some of them had most unsavory records. A few had even worn prison stripes. This was the sort of thing which a President of Mr. Cleveland's temper could not forgive, and he became suspicious of all persons who urged the claims of friends. Toward those who had deceived him, his attitude became brusque to a degree. On one occasion, a prominent politician signed a request for the appointment of a certain individual to a judgeship in one of the Pacific states. The appointment was made and the new judge was almost immediately seen to be absolutely unfitted for the office. The politician wrote to Mr. Cleveland, explaining that he had signed the petition, not for one moment believing the appointment was possible. 
In answer to this frank confession, the President wrote the following letter, which must have made its recipient writhe. Note 18, page 77. Executive Mansion, Washington, August 1, 1885. Dear Sir, I have read your letter with amazement and indignation. There is one, but one, mitigation to the perfidy which your letter discloses, and that is found in the fact you confess your share in it. The idea that this administration pledged to give the people better officers and engaged in a hand-to-hand -hand fight with the bad elements of both parties should be betrayed by those who ought to be worthy of implicit trust is atrocious, and such treason to the people and to the party ought to be punished by imprisonment. Your confession comes too late to be of immediate use to the public service, and I can only say that, while this is not the first time I have been deceived and misled by lying and treacherous representations, you are the first one that has so frankly owned his grievous fault. If any comfort is to be extracted from this assurance, you are welcome to it. Grover Cleveland A certain senator on another occasion came to him to complain about his policy regarding appointments. What do you want me to do? asked the President, interrupting him. Why, Mr. President, I should like to see you move more expeditiously in advancing the principles of the democracy. Ah, said the President, with a flash of the eye, I suppose you mean that I should appoint two horse-thieves a day instead of one. The extreme advocates of civil service reform, on the other hand, complained because so many changes had been made. One act of the executive exasperated them beyond all measure. This was the designation of Mr. Eugene Higgins of Maryland to the appointment clerk in the Treasury Department. Mr. Higgins was the bête noire of all reformers. He was a protégé of Senator Gorman and was known to be a spoilsman of the purest water. The Maryland Civil Service Association had once protested in vigorous terms against his appointment and asked for his immediate removal. This protest was taken up by the independents all over the country, and Mr. Higgins was denounced in terms of extravagant abuse. It was said that this one act of Mr. Cleveland's had destroyed all confidence in his professions. He was declared to have broken his pledges, to have betrayed the cause of civil service reform, and to have gone over wholly to the enemy. Mr. Higgins, however, was not removed, and the clamor of the mugwumps continued unabated. Meanwhile, the Republicans had remained quiescent. It amused them to see the new president so roundly berated by his own supporters. The Republican Party leaders were biding their time and were making a very careful study of the man whom they were presently to confront. Looking over the situation, the shrewdest of them thought it best to let things take their course. It seemed good policy for them not to play an obstructive part when Congress should assemble. They decided that a resort to promiscuous filibustering would prove in the end unpopular with the country. They were confident, however, that in time the President would make some serious mistake of which they might take immediate advantage. When Congress met in December, the watchword was passed along the Republican ranks, just wait a while and then put Cleveland in a hole. A fortnight or so before the opening of the session, the Vice President, Mr. Hendricks, died at Indianapolis. Note 19, page 79. As Congress was not sitting, and as in consequence there was no President of the Senate, there existed no constitutional successor to the presidency should Mr. Cleveland die during the interval before Congress met. Therefore, he felt that he ought not to take the long journey necessary to attend the funeral at Indianapolis. Malicious persons saw in his absence on that occasion a confirmation of his alleged unfriendliness toward the deceased vice-president, but the country in general commended his refusal to run even the slightest risk of bringing about a condition which would leave the government without a head.
End of chapter 2, part 2